Hello and welcome to season two of Chic Podcast with Kat Sark, where we explore the most pressing issues in fashion studies, fashion education, culture, media, and technology from a perspective of decoloniality, sustainability, and social justice. The 37th episode was recorded with Tansy Hoskins, who is an award-winning journalist and author whose work focuses on labor rights and the politics of the fashion industry. Her research has taken her to Bangladesh, Kenya, Macedonia, and other key locations around the world. She's the author of the award-winning Stitched Up, the anti-capitalist book of fashion from 2014, and currently reconceptualized for a second edition due to come out next fall. And the second book, Footwork, What Your Shoes Are Doing to the World from 2020, an expose of the dark origins of the shoes on our feet. In June 2021, she won the Freelance Fashion and Beauty Writer Award at the Freelance Writing Awards. You can follow her work on social media and subscribe to her newsletter on her website, which is linked in the show notes. Hello, dear Tansy. Welcome to Chic Podcast. Thank you kindly for taking the time to record it with me. And please tell us more about yourself, your work, and how you came to work in fashion. Uh, well, yes. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me uh, onto Chic Podcast. It's really lovely to be here and to finally get to speak with you. Um, so yeah, my name is uh, Tansy Hoskins. I'm the author of uh, stitched up the anti-capitalist book of fashion and also footwork what your shoes are doing to the world um, I started writing about the fashion industry because I was basically looking for answers and I couldn't find them anywhere uh, I you know I, I couldn't find a book that talked about fashion and capitalism so I just I started writing articles um, and, and kind of blogging and stuff and eventually that that turned into a book which you know then it turned out that lots of other people had these kind of questions about fashion um, and capitalism so I just kind of kept going and kept going with the with the journalism. That's great and what's your background did you start with as a journalist or did you start in fashion? Neither, really. So I, I have a, a political background, I would say, like my, uh, my undergraduate degree was in international relations um, at uh, LSE. And then I've always been um, very involved uh, in political campaigns. So um, when I was at university, I did a lot around the, the war on Iraq and Afghanistan. So a lot in the anti-war movement. Um, and in the environmental movement, anti-globalization movement and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and I don't have a fashion background, which I think has been really, really important for allowing me to do the work that I do and to write the, the books and the articles that I write, because I don't see myself as dependent upon the fashion industry for my livelihood. So I can, you know, I can write what I what I want to write, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, being an outsider actually has the advantage of allowing have this critical lens and allowing you to be able to deconstruct the industry that I think a lot of fashion scholars are really deeply attached to and sometimes are reluctant to criticize. Yes, definitely. And I mean, it's a really like it's a really kind of closely guarded 
industry like you know the industry itself is quite closely guarded and quite cliquey and I think a lot of the time sort of traditional fashion studies is also quite closely guarded and quite cliquey so um, uh, yeah, I'm yeah I'm happy kind of I'm happy being being independent and, and on the outside of those. Mm-hmm. I have to thank you for both of your books because I used them um, in my teaching. I teach at the University of Southern Denmark and I teach critical fashion studies. And your books are really the core of what allowed me to restructure the, the whole uh, stream of the program that I'm in and really approach fashion studies from this critical decolonial ethical perspective and prepare the next generation of uh, professionals going into that industry to really look at the whole industry as problematic to begin with, but also with a hopeful lens to be able to to change it, to reform it. But I think it's important for us to to think about it as it all interconnected. A lot of people like to decouple the decoloniality from the uh, environmental concerns that we're all facing, that we all have inherited, look at fashion education as an integral part of reforming the industry. And I think I want, I really want to thank you for helping me do this work through your books and giving this wider perspective of how things are interconnected. So you just recently did an, a second edition of Stitched Up. Can you please tell us a bit more about the new edition and why it was important for you? Firstly, you know, thank, thank you so much. Like I, I definitely never envisaged that Stitched Up and Footwork would have, you know, have that kind of audience or, uh, or impact when I, when I was writing them. And it's, you know, it's, it's really quite a, a dream a dream come true to hear about that you know that level of impact uh, and I, you know you just you write books so you just you hope somebody somewhere out there will read them and find them useful so I'm yeah I'm, I'm really I'm really thrilled to hear that so yes I have uh, just finished uh, the second edition um, I believe the second edition is just going to be called the anti-capitalist book of fashion it is what it's it's based upon the the first book but it it, it also feels quite it feels quite new um, as a book because there, there was just a lot that I wanted to I wanted to add I mean my like my journalism has developed an awful lot since I wrote uh, stitched up uh, you know I've traveled a lot more I've done I, you know been to many many like garment producing areas and, and countries and and got to speak with a lot more people and I really wanted to include a lot of that first-hand testimony in the book. I also thought it was really important to obviously write about the impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic on uh, not just garment workers but also home workers and fashion models as well um, and on our patterns of, of consumption. It was very interesting to return to the book because I wrote the book at originally uh, I finished it a week before the collapse of the Rana Plaza factory in which, as you know, 1,138 people were killed. And that moment in history was supposed to be the big watershed in the fashion industry you know it was supposed to be the time and the moment and the place where the fashion industry changed you Mm -hmm. know where we ruled out injustice and we you know and we started to treat people properly and you know we and we took seriously the environmental impact and then to be writing this second edition when we've just been through and are going through a pandemic which has shown 
to me that nothing really has changed in the fashion industry mm-hmm. and that we still expect the the social cost of any kind of of disaster to be borne by the people who've been most made most vulnerable by capitalism in within the fashion industry and then at the same time to be looking at the present and the near future in terms of climate change uh, and to be you know accepting and exploring and becoming angry about the fact that we are very likely to see that pattern repeated again in the future so you know we, we had Rana Plaza which laid out the inequalities of the industry and the colonial pathways of the industry we've now we now experiencing the COVID pandemic where we're seeing that repeated and climate change you know which is going to be the biggest challenge bigger than bigger than Rana Plaza bigger than COVID bigger than anything we've experienced and if you know if we don't act collectively and act soon we're going to see these same patterns repeat themselves yeah it was like it's been an interesting moment I think to 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 work to rework the text and then of course you know like there's just so much like kind of smaller stuff that's happened in the industry like when I first wrote stitched up like Instagram wasn't even really uh, a thing uh, like debt companies like Klarna weren't really like weren't a, a thing so yeah there's a lot a lot that's changed mm-hmm. and yeah. and a lot that stayed the same and did you have to do a lot new research or was it things that you were doing along the way anyways and just felt like you needed to include in the new edition Yeah, so it's a mixture. So there was um, a lot of it was stuff that I've done over the last five or so years that I really felt needed a permanent home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then there were, yeah, there were some gaps. There were some people that I was uh, really, in, whose work I'm really interested in, um, who I who I wanted to like seek out and, and, and ask to interview and talk with and talk through some ideas. One of the people, I mean, you, you know, you, you've mentioned this idea of like decolonizing the fashion industry. Uh, one of the people I was like most pleased to cut you know to enter into a like a dialogue with and you know and who I, I learned an awful lot with was um, Riley Kusharon, uh mm-hmm. who's at uh, X University mm-hmm. yeah like um, I got a chance to kind of like talk to him about a lot of these issues and working more and more towards what an actual kind of decolonization of the fashion industry would really look like which I think is a, is a really interesting question because it's kind kind of a word like it's a very you know it's a powerful word it's a word that gets used a lot and I think it's a word that often gets used to not mean very much Mm -hmm. uh like because I you know for me I think it's it's not about kind of tweaking things in the fashion industry or trying to just diversify the power structure at the top or kind of reading different books and things like these things are important but really for me like decolonization uh should be what it's really meant uh, in in the in the real sense of, of the word, which is transfer of power from one social class to another, mm-hmm. you know, sweeping away colonial practices, colonial administrations, um, uh, and colonial injustices. And I think you know, and this is like one of the things I was like, you know, talking to Riley about uh, is that really, if you're talking about decolonizing the fashion industry, you are talking about the fashion industry not existing anymore, mm-hmm. which is quite a, quite a lot to kind of get your head around. But you know, if you really got rid of all the colonial injustices in the fashion industry like you wouldn't have a fashion industry yeah Um, you would you would have to start from scratch basically with like very small and ethical and local production and 
consumption yeah you know? like there's no yeah no more like 60 million garment workers in the in the global south be, being paid a pittance mm -hmm. uh, yeah. no, it, you know, it no would more. literally be farm to table right like the model of the slow food movement applied to fashion hasn't quite reached the same standing i think right like where you would have to grow your own fibers you would have to harvest them and tend to them and do all the this kind of work. And then you would have to produce your own garments. <laughs> Again, yeah. a whole skill set is not really practiced in the traditional sense anymore. And then you would have to build a, a community around the economy, right? A community-based economy to even make that possible, which we all don't even think about it. But I think it... it yeah. It is possible because we do see it in in the food industry. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I definitely see fashion and, or clothing as it's it's more complicated than than food, right? And I like I like I think I think it would be it would be more difficult. Like it's really interesting at the moment. There's a lot of these conversations happening about what a, a, a transformed clothing industry might look like. I mean, I think we will need a level of kind of like planned economy. Being in, in the UK is more difficult to imagine, you know, like we, I mean, we can't grow a lot of the crops mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and stuff that you would need to like turn in, you know, to cotton, for example. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, all the things you have to consider. Yeah. Yeah. And if way too many sheep, uh, you know, we need like this, the land here really needs to move away from sheep and like sheep farming to you know to be reforested and stuff and but yeah I think it's exciting I think it's like it's it's a it's an exciting moment to have so many people talking about these transition points that are mm -hmm. so needed. You already touched on the question of uh, decolonizing the discipline of fashion studies and, and the actual the whole fashion industry but um, maybe you could sum up why why it is so important to understand the bigger picture of everything that includes an understanding of the colonial exploitation and how it connects to the people, to the planet, to the environmental de degradation. So why is there this um, urgency for everybody who is just getting into learning about fashion, young people who are creative and want to use their creativity, but maybe you could just sum up what is at stake, what they are getting, what they're getting into and why it's important to stay critical about it. Yeah, well, I guess like the, the biggest reason uh, is because I, I fundamentally don't believe that the fashion industry will continue to exist in the way that it's that it's working at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the role of fashion studies of any kind of education at the moment has got to be preparing and, and shepherding students and and people in our communities towards a very very seismic change which is being you know which is coming towards us because of the impact of human beings and and capitalism on on the planet and i i don't think there's really any point in just preparing students to go uh, into an industry into a horrible industry that is you know is often extremely damaging for students particularly students uh, from my minority backgrounds but I just don't think there's any point in preparing students to go into an industry and just be there to kind of maximize profit uh, design things that just appeal to the kind of lowest common denominator of of retail and just kind of churn out millions and millions and billions and billions of bits of pieces 
uh, of clothing every year. So, you know, I think it'd be much better if we're training people to work towards the transition away from this, from this, you know, and, and that means understanding uh, labor rights and uh, labor conditions in the industry. Uh, it means having a fundamental understanding of environmental science uh, and, and, and pollution and, and uh, the extractive industries and, and how we stop clothing production from being dependent upon those. I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really big job, but I just don't think the industry is going to be the industry for that much longer, either because we positively change it in the cuts, you know, some of the ways we've been talking about just now, or because we go over this environmental cliff edge within the next 50 years, and it just becomes impossible to have this ridiculous short term industry anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that you touched on a really crucial part, because that is the hardest that is the hardest task for all of us, right? For researchers, for scholars, for educators, and, and for designers, for people who are mm -hmm. basically in the industry right now or just about to enter it. Because uh, a lot of the students who come from critical uh, fashion studies, they know that the industry is not sustainable and they want to change it. But the question is the how, right? Like, how do we actually move this huge behemoth of a, of an industry that is profitable mm -hmm. for, that is still very profitable to maintain the status quo, to keep exploiting and to keep squeezing the last cents out of it as long as possible mm -hmm. until it collapses? Because I think the, the fact that there is a backlash to the either the climate crisis movement the environmental movement or the ethics movement the decoloniality mm. movement i think it just shows that people are realizing that this is this is a finite opportunity to exploit and yeah. but they continue to benefit from it and yeah. the question of you know like how do you how do you make that transition possible before more disasters happen before more people die before more damage is more irreversible damage is created that is the the real hard part i think for all of us to to sit down and really reimagine and reconceptualize something that is sustainable that is ethical that is creative good sense of using human creativity to do good and to create mm. things that are useful and that are helpful in that sense um so fashion is I always think of fashion as such a paradoxical thing because on the one hand, like you said, you need to start from scratch. You need to get rid of the whole infested colonial framework. Um, mm. But then on the other hand, there's a lot of a lot of creativity, a lot of good that can be done within it as with all systems I think so I always think of paradoxes as these seemingly unresolvable mm. problems to have but in a way human nature but it is paradoxical and we all we all live with paradoxes in our lives and I think that's the human condition of trying to resolve something that may or may not be possible to resolve and living with these yeah. contradictions all the, all the time um, yes and I think it, if there's a, any kind of takeaway from this I think I've noticed from my work is that having more creative collaborations try I think what I do in my work and what I think you are doing in, in your work as well is trying to map out the bigger picture and really educate people and show this is really what it looks like so creating transparency and creating knowledge about what is going on 
is you know like is really really important and then the next yeah. step to go from the research and from the thinking and and talking about it to the actual activism part that is yeah that is the hard step that that many of us are struggling with and I was talking to some colleagues who have been part of Extinction Rebellion and have now branched into the Fashion Act Now organization mm. or or movement and they're calling for the to defashion fashion essentially and yeah restarting the whole the whole idea of what fashion means do you have any yeah any thoughts on how to bridge this process of the the how I guess like how do we get from from understanding the problem to being part of the solutions to the problem the, the actual activism of it all yeah uh, it is about connecting to the to the discomfort of what is happening mm -hmm. and, I, and again I think that is where where education is really important and you know education both inside and outside of universities but kind of not shying away from from the reality of, of what the fashion industry is and, and and what it does to you know to, to people and planet is really important and again I mean yes the the defashion uh, manifesto like yes is you know it, it's interesting I mean I think we need we definitely need need very very radical solutions I mean I am personally I am less interested in solutions that are just about consumption and just portray the answers as tw like tweaking our you know our own consumption habits you know not buying this or buying or buying that or like just you know making or dying or like weaving your own clothes kind of thing I, th I think it's really really important that we center co like collective activities and we act in solidarity with people in the global south I think that's some of the most important thing I think we still seeing this kind of centering of like western consumers which I still think is like is not quite the right way of looking at the fashion industry um, mm -hmm. but I think it yeah I think it kind of continues at the moment so you know it comes back to this idea of like you know a global green a global green new deal for people uh with like with garment workers at the heart of that you know with a with a just transition you know working out like what are we going to do you know what do people in Bangladesh want to do once this export you know export oriented economy like changes and it, you know because yeah, it's, it's not viable and so thinking about like how we clean up the mess that the fashion industry has made to begin with you know how we like make people from garment workers into engineers and into environmental scientists make sure that there's a living wage for people which is not dependent upon the garment industry um all these kind of things you know there's like a sort of shopping list of things that that needs to change and that those are just a few of them mm -hmm. the step between thinking or educating or creating transparency and doing something is moving away from this consumer oriented mindset that you can purchase yourself a solution to more of an activist citizen political action right so that yeah. collective political organizing that will change the bigger political economy of things rather than your own personal approach to to fashion or to the economic degradation or the environmental degradation of the industry yes yeah in footwork I, I've done that diagram the, the the triangle of change 
mm-hmm. uh, where you have, you know, where because like, you know, fa- like clothes and shoes, they're really personal objects. Right. So people always start out when they start thinking, oh, how do I change the fashion industry? Like everybody always starts with their own sort of personal wardrobe mm-hmm. uh, and things. So like that, you know, that's the little bit at the top of the triangle, you know, and there's there's nothing wrong with with like wanting to change that, but you can't stay there. Uh, you can't, you know, you can't stay imagining that if you shop differently or stop shopping or whatever, that you'll fix things. So then you have, you know, in the middle of the triangle is the political change section uh, you know, and that is like, like you know, that's the the often long and boring and difficult kind of collective uh, action where we, you know, where we try and change legislation, where we try and get uh, environmental regulation, where we try and increase, uh, you know, wages so that there's a, a living wage, uh, you know, battling with our elected representatives, like battling with, you know, giant multinational corporations and international bodies uh, and things like that. And then uh, which is, you know, which is the the job of 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 all of us and and generations, and you know, crucially, like I think the world is often set up so that we think we're not a part of change, but mm-hmm. I think it's when you get into political change and you work with other people that you realise, oh wow, like we can, you know, we can actually uh, actually massively uh, change things and make a difference, but then at the base of the triangle, the biggest chunk is the systemic change. Uh, and again, like this is why the fashion industry is so interesting. It's, uh, you know, and it's because like it has all these fundamental blocks of capitalism right there in the fashion industry. So, you know, that uh, the the oppression and exploitation of, of women uh, and uh, of the global south and of, of people of color and of the um, of the environment, you know, and, and the violence and, uh, and and the violence against women that, you know, that keeps all of this running um so at some point you know i believe that to change the fashion industry and i don't think we change the fashion industry in a vacuum i think we have to take on the whole system eventually you have to move on to the you know to the fact of systemic change uh, and to confronting it and understanding how all these things are linked and that if we really want to change things then we have to change the the system that we are that we're living under that has led us you know that has caused so much so much destruction and and which is you know only only set to get worse in the next uh, 30 or so years mm-hmm, absolutely and yeah like you said it starts with trying to educate people about it trying to show people that it's absolutely inevitable we don't really have an option to linger and wait and let other people take charge or do this kind of work on on our behalf it's like there's there's just not enough time left to yeah. to to linger and and not not be active in this yeah but it's there's a you know there's a big a very very big reward waiting for us at the end if if we manage it you know if we manage to like uh, avert catastrophe I mean you know just thinking again about the fashion industry like imagine imagine the fashion industry without uh, like without capitalism you know where design is not being controlled by a small group of you know European primarily European and American uh, corporations you know, mm-hmm. where everybody can be a designer and where we're not just confined by like gender and race and sexuality and class uh, and all these things. Like I think a very, very exciting explosion of design and, and creativity 
um, you know, and that's just like this, this one industry. Yeah, absolutely. So just to conclude, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the projects that you're still currently working on? So I've literally just handed in the manuscript for the anti-capitalist book of fashion. So, uh, so that is still, I'm, I'm just waiting to get the, the edits back from, from the publisher. Um, during the pandemic, uh, I co-founded um, a group called Journo uh, Collectivo, which is a cross-border group of journalists. Uh, and, and we, we uh, received some funding and we did a project uh, called Mapping the COVID Rights Rollback which was looking at garment workers in uh, Bangladesh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Honduras, uh, and Los Angeles. So that work is online and like um, at journocollectivo.net. And then I'm hoping to do another project soon uh, with that team. Uh, so yeah, that's, those are my main points of focus at the moment. Great, thank you. And anything else you would like to share with our listeners? people have questions like i'm on uh twitter at tansy hoskins and facebook uh tansy hoskins author page and i've got a newsletter that people can sign up to um that goes out just like once a month from my website which is tansyhoskins.org that's great well thank you so much for all of your amazing work all of the inspiration that you provide in your in your writing in in your activism it's really really inspiring to to follow you and to to watch your work and to read your books and thank you for taking the time today to talk to me no, it's been a it's been a real a real pleasure, and um, you'll have to make sure we get get you a copy of uh, the Anti Capitalist Book of Fashion, the second edition. I think it's due out in September twenty twenty two. Oh, so, that's exciting! Yeah. I'm really looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah, I hope you like it. I am sure I will. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for the 37th episode of Chic Podcast. I'd like to thank Tansy Hoskins for taking the time to record this podcast with me and for all of her important and inspiring work. The music you hear is Bach's Prelude in C major, performed by my very talented friend Matteo Tansi. Thank you for listening. Please share the link to this episode on your social media channels. You can find me on Instagram under at Canadian Fashion Scholars. And until next time. <laughs>